Welcome to the Link Adelaide podcast. Today with another interview from an artist at the 2012 Adelaide Fringe Festival. Enjoy. And I'm joined on the line by Tom Burton, uh, who is uh, bringing Don't Care to the 2012 Adelaide Fringe Festival. It's a, a one-man theatre piece uh, where... Actually, no, sorry, 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 Stephen, it isn't a one-man thing. I've got a cast of nine. You've got a cast of nine? I have, yes. Oh, my goodness. Okay, we better start talking about it because we're going to keep and, getting and, things and, wrong. Yes, okay. And by the way, we're, we're not reciting poems. We're, re- we're reading them. There's, I, I say this, there's, there's a, I think there's an important difference here. Yeah. Um, if, if people come expecting to see people recite or act out, they, they bring a certain number of expectations of drama and so forth. Whereas if, if they see people with, with pieces of paper in their hand, which we shall have, then they're not expecting a full dramatization. A, a, a moved reading or a rehearsed reading is, I think, um, quite different, though obviously it has similarities with, mm-hmm. uh, with a performance. And um, so we, we don't pretend to be full-blown actors, but we do, we do want these poems to be heard read aloud um, because, because all poetry, but especially dialect poetry, has mm-hmm. to be heard in, in the pronunciation of its time and region if it's going to be appreciated. Awesome. Now, it's uh, looking at uh, the works of uh, poet William Barnes. Yes. Um, what can you tell me about him? William Barnes, a 19th century poet born in the county of Dorset in the southwest of England. It's, it's the third one across from the left. You've got Cornwall, then Devon, and the third one across is, is Dorset. Um, he was born in, 19, in 1801, had a, lived almost through the whole century, died 1886. Um, wow. Uh, he, he was born into a very poor farming family. Well, in those days, they were called peasants. <laughs> but uh, he was a self-educated man, got, had schooling only till the age of 13. Mm-hmm. Um, he became a solicitor's clerk to begin with. It was said because of his lovely handwriting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his education was taken in hand by a couple of local clergymen. Um, he went on to become a schoolmaster and a self-taught linguist. Um, he spoke... Uh, and wrote grammars of several languages. One of his pupils came top in the civil service exams for India at that time, one of his pupils to whom he had taught Hindustani. Wow. So this is the kind of great scholar he was. Mm. Um, and he, he wrote poems from a fairly early age, sort of standard conventional late romantic poems, but suddenly in his early 30s, he started to write poetry in his own local dialect that he had spoken as a child in Dorset's Blackmore Vale. And when he, and when he started to write those poems, he had absolutely suddenly found his voice. And these, these poems are marvelous. In his own day, he was regarded as the local Burns. Um, but, but Burns, of course, had the whole of Scotland behind him, mm. whereas Barnes, from a, from a little despised corner of rural agricultural England, which mm-hmm. from London looked like, you know, beyond the pale, um, it was much more difficult for him to make a mark. But, but his, his dialect poems went through several editions. There were three collections of them, and um, we are doing poems this year from the third collection. I, uh, in previous years, I've done collections, uh, sorry, poems from earlier collection, first, second, and, and, now, and now the third. Lovely. And, um, these are just terrific. Awesome. Now, uh, you're talking about uh, there being, them being dialect poems, so yes. obviously, as, as I think you mentioned as well, they need to be read in the Dorset dialect. 
Um, yes, in the Dorset dialect of that time, it's, it's now changed quite significantly because of the impact of universal education mm -hmm. and travel and broadcasting and so on and so forth. And so how, how rich, how deep is the Dorset dialect? Is it something that is very easily understood by... Oh, I think so. I, I, I have this, it, it may just be a forlorn faith or what, what one of my former colleagues would have called a pious hope. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think that um, dialect and indeed historical forms of the language, like, for example, Geoffrey Chaucer, 14th century English, if it is read aloud in the pronunciation of that time, as, as scholars tell us was the pronunciation, it's actually much easier to understand than if it's read aloud in modern English, where the mm. rhymes don't work and it's got the wrong number of syllables per line and so on and so forth. Well, I think I, I certainly find that with Shakespeare, I find, you know, sitting down with the complete works very, very difficult to get into, but if someone wants to perform one of the plays for me, it's, it's much, much easier to kind of go, that's what it all means, and it becomes very, very beautiful straight away. So I'm imagining it, it'll be the same with the poems. Yes, absolutely. But actually, you know, Shakespeare is an interesting case because, of course, the pronunciation in Shakespeare's day was, was greatly different from today, but his, his language is nevertheless so very close to our language um, that if you insist on the pronunciation of Shakespeare's day for his plays, I think that puts a barrier between the audience uh, and the understanding. Whereas with, with Chaucer or, or William Barnes, who is much more recent than Shakespeare, but his language is much further from ours in its forms, um, I think you've got to hear them in the, in the pronunciation of their time and region. Okay. Um, and so in what ways have... Because I'm going to get you to... We're going to hear one of the poems shortly. Um, yeah. In what ways has the dialect changed between the 18th, oh, between 17th century and today? No, oh, it's the well, 19th century, sorry. Yeah, it's 19th, 19th century, <laughs> correct. Um, a, a lot of the, I mean, the, the, the continual, you might say, the insidious impact of, uh, of universal education, because, because everybody now has primary education. They, they may leave, what is it, what's the, I think, I think 15 is probably the earliest one is allowed to leave school, but if you've had, N years of schooling through the medium of standard English, you, you are just bound to lose some of the pronunciations you grew up with. And so um, some of the rhymes disappear and the grammar changes towards modern English and so on and so forth. I mean, this is just inevitable. So even though there are, there are still current dialect speakers, they are speaking a, a much uh, a form of the dialect that is now much closer to standard English mm -hmm. than it was in Barney's day. Great. And what drove you to learn to speak the original Dorset dialect so they could do these poems? Yeah, good on you. Um, I, I happened to have um, a, a sabbatical leave in the year 2001, mm -hmm. the bicentenary of Barnes's birth. And um, for family reasons, we, we went to Dorset, my wife and I, her, her parents had retired to Dorset. They were not oh. Dorset people. Yeah. They had retired to the county of Dorset. And uh, when, we, when we arrived uh, in Dorset, in order to be near them, because they were getting old and fragile then, and Jill wanted to spend some time near them, which seemed to me perfectly reasonable, um, they, I, I noticed, although I, I had gone on, on leave to do a different project, but they were making a big fuss about, about Barnes in his bicentenary year. Much more than normal. Normally, down in Dorset, Thomas Hardy eclipses everything. No other writers get a look in because Hardy is the giant. But Hardy, by the way, 
40 years younger than Barnes. He was a great admirer of Barnes's work. Barnes became his mentor and his friend, and Hardy looked up to him tremendously. And, and Hardy wrote a poem in honor of Barnes for Barnes's funeral when Barnes died. And, and after Barnes died, Hardy brought out a new selection of his poems uh, with an introduction by himself. That's all by the by. <laughs> How did I get it? Okay, so, so we lobbed up in Dorset to see Jill's parents, and um, Jill came home from the, local, from the local library. She's a voracious reader. She reads about 10 books to my one. I'm a slow reader. Anyway, um, amongst the leaflets she brought home, there was one that spoke about the special William Barnes collection at the Dorchester, uh, the Dorchester County Library, and there was a lot of publicity about it being his bicentenary. And the, the name rang a bell with me. I thought, yes, I've, I've heard that name, but what do I know about him? And then I remembered that I'd read about him in A History of the Language, and the two things I remembered about him were, one, that he wrote poems in his local dialect, but I didn't remember that I'd read any of them, mm-hmm. and two, um, that he resented the way that English had borrowed so many words from Latin and French and Greek. He wanted to keep it to pure Anglo-Saxon. And he reckoned that the language of his home county, Wessex, Dorset, was the language of King Alfred, unadulterated by French and, and Latin <laughs> and so on. Well, you know, excited and interested by, by all this publicity, I thought, hey, yeah, I know about this bloke, but I haven't read his poems. I'm going to go and borrow an anthology and, and see what the poems are like which I did. And I read the first one, and I thought, hey, that's a pretty good poem. And I read another, just, just at random, flicking through, you know, and I, said, I thought, wow, this, this chap can write. And by the time I'd read the third one, I thought, for heaven's sake, why isn't this bloke on every syllabus where they teach English literature all over the world? But at the same time, I thought, hey, hang on a minute. Some of these rhymes are a bit funny. I mean, he rhymed go with shoe, for example. Go with blue and chew. And he rhymed corn with barn. And storm with harm, as well as warm. Storm. And I thought, is that, is that storm, harm, warm? Or is it storm, harm, warm? Or is it a bad rhyme? And, mm. and you know, and I didn't know. So then I went to the... Uh, to the um, the local library, and I said, have you got any recordings of local dialect speakers reading William Barnes's poems? Oh, yes, they said, yes, come in, come in, listen. Uh, they, had, they had quite a lot, and I went and I listened, and I quickly noticed that there was a good deal of overlap. Mm. Uh, there were some, many things on which all readers agreed, but there were many others on which they disagreed, and on top of everything, nobody was getting all the rhymes but I was firmly convinced that these were true rhymes because if you look at the, at the really intricate, skillful stanza forms and structures that Barnes uses, because he, he's, he's, he's a maestro of, of stanzaic form and rhyme schemes and so on, are, 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 you know, really brilliant. I thought these cannot be um, poor rhymes. I think the pronunciation must have changed. So... So there, I found my name. <laughs> I was going to, I, I, I immediately um, set out on a new topic to tell, the, to tell the locals how to pronounce their own dialect. <laughs> nice. Or at least how it would have been pronounced in the middle of the 19th century. Gee, I've had fun doing that. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, so, I, I, get, I get kind of 
from from talking to you that um, sorry, really, really basic question. Do you, are you an English teacher of some kind or an yes, English professor? Yes, I, yes, I, yes. Uh, that's right. I, I teach English at the University of Adelaide, um, I, and have done for more years than I'm going to admit to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Two thirds of my life, at least. Um, and I am by training a medievalist, so oh, okay. so so naturally, I'm interested in Chaucer. This is how I got interested in Chaucer pronunciation. And and for example, I founded the Chaucer Studio back in 1986 to make recordings mm. of Chaucer's works in 14th century pronunciation for use as teaching aids. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've got so many friends through that enterprise. We're a non-profit organization. We, we're not trying to make money. Uh, we do it because we want Chaucer's works to be heard. And, and my colleagues in, in other universities and in the States have expanded it into other languages, Old Norse, Old High German, Ita you know, and so on and so forth, um, uh, uh, Old French and, and whatever. And, and now, but now recently with William Barnes, I'm bringing it forward into the 19th century. Nice. And so, so it's the Chaucer Studio, which is putting on this, uh, this show. And uh, by the way, the, the, the other thing about Barnes' poems that really appeal, appealed to me, to me personally um, is, is that they are poems about living in the country. The, the, the titles are Poems of Rural Life in the Dorset Dialect. And I grew up on a farm myself. Uh, on a farm in Shropshire, okay, it's a different part of the country, but it's still western. And uh, I think like most people who grew up on the land, I have retained a residual nostalgia for life on the land. And William Barnes's poems, which depict the pre-industrial life on the land with such loving attention to detail and appreciation of, of, of the life, while at the same time not trying to disguise the difficulties of the poor, the rural poor, um, they're marvelous. And uh, his, his, his coverage of, of a great range of emotions is terrific. The, several of the sad poems that he wrote um, when his wife died, she, she died young. She was only about 48, you know, just a spring chook. Mm. Um, and um, he was absolutely devastated. And he wrote a series of poems on the death of his wife, which... Well, I, I, I cannot read them with a dry eye. It's a jolly good job that I know them well, because when I try to read them aloud, I can hardly see the page. <laughs> but it, and, and, and so those are the sad ones. But the funny ones as well just make me absolutely howl with laughter. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's just, just brilliant. And they, they, these points have to be heard to be believed. That's what mm. I say. And are they easy to... Because uh, I'm, I'm just browsing the interwebs while we talk and I'm just finding a few of the poems on a free website and yep. some of them you know they've got they've got words that you know uh cheeks as in I think creeks C H E A K S. I imagine that's creeks. Cheeks. Cheeks. No that's cheeks on your face. Oh, okay. Cheeks I guess yeah. that, now, now, you, spelling and all you, sorts is weird. Yeah exactly. You've immediately put your finger on one of the things that puts people off. Barnes used, uh, he tried to indicate how the words were pronounced in his spellings. And when one meets the printed text, one is immediately put off because it looks so odd with all those umlauts and funny spellings and whatnot. And you think, oh, foreign language, I, ha I can't be bothered, I haven't got time. Mm. So, so, so when I'm putting on the shows, I never give people a printed text. I want them to hear it. Mm. If they hear it, 
it, you can understand it. Okay, there's the odd word that you don't get, but so what? You get the gist of it. Um, and afterwards, you can see a printed text, fine. But if you give the people a printed text while, while you're reading it, um, you know, they stop listening, they read the text. Uh, and that puts them off, the spellings put them off. Um, so cool. I, th- I think it's time to hear one of the poems because I, I mean, I'm kind of looking forward to it because I've, you know, I, I personally hear a few um, podcasts of radio shows from the UK, so I'm a little bit familiar with the the Dorset accent. It seems to be one that has a lot of what I would call a diphthong, but I don't know nearly as much English as you do. Um, yeah. But seem to go, seem to you drop an O in funny ways. You sort of or Dorset or something like that. I, I don't know how to do it properly. Um, okay. But, um, yeah, it seems to have a certain rhythm to it that's um, quite fun. Definitely. How Absolutely. would you kind of... I, I agree with that. It, it is a very musical language, very musical, as people say Welsh is. Mm-hmm. Um, and he handles it beautifully. Okay, um, thanks, Stephen. I, I'd like to read you the poem from which we've taken the title of the show, Don't Care. It's, okay. it's actually a love poem. Well, what a marvelous title for a love poem, Don't Care. Um, and one of the things I really like about it is that you meet, you meet any number of love poems that deal only with courtship. They take you up to the moment of marriage and then they stop. But this is a love poem that deals not only with courtship, but with love within marriage. And it gives you both points of view, the husbands and the wife. And I just think, I think this is a super poem. Uh, I think there's only one word that is likely to cause any difficulty. It comes in the second line, haparin, a haparin storm. That is a storm where the raindrops are so big that they hop like hailstones. Haparin means hopping, hopping or bouncing. And here it goes. Uh, This is the man speaking at the beginning of the poem. At the feast... I do mind very well. All the folks were a took in a happerin' storm. But we chaps took the maidens and kept them with cloaks under shelter, all dry and all warm. And to my lot, Velgian, that's my bride, that did titter a hung at my side. Said her aunt, Why, the vocal tech finally are you? And cried she, I don't care if they do. When the time of the feast were again a come round, and the folk were a gathered once more, why, she guessed if she went there, she'd soon be avowned, and it took safely home to her door. Said her mother, tis sure to be wet. Said her cousin, till rain be sunset. Said her aunt, why, the clouds there to look black and blue. And said she, I don't care if they do. And at last, when she owned I would make her my bride were to help me and share all my lot, and with faithfulness keep all her life at my side, though my way might be happy or not, said her neighbours, why, wedlock's a clog and a wife's a tied up like a dog, said her aunt, you'll find trials enough for to rue. And said she, I don't care if I do. Now she's married, and still in the midst of her toils, she's as happy as the daylight is long. She'd a go out abroad, we are fierce full of smiles, and a work in the house, we are zong. And um, Zazun, 
She don't grieve, you can tell. There's another. Why, don't she look well? There's her aunt. Why, the young folk do envy you too. And says she, I don't care if they do. Now for me, I can zing in my business abroad. Though the storm do beat down on my pole. There's a wife brightened fire at the end of my road. And her love for the joy of my soul. Out a door, I were rogues might be tried. Out a door, be brow beaten with pride. Men mid scowl out a door, if my wife is but true. Let em scowl, I don't care if they do. Beautiful. There it is. <laughs> I think it's an absolutely lovely poem. Oh, Fingers beautiful. up to the neighbours. <laughs> and lovely, I mean, as, as I said, lovely and rhythmical and, yeah, really, really nice. Yeah. Um, Tom, it has been an absolute pleasure having a chat to you today. It's gone a little bit longer than they normally do, these interviews. Um, Don't Care is going to be at the Adelaide Fringe at the Barsmith Library in the Ira Raymond Room. Uh, three shows only, Tuesday the 13th of March, Thursday the 15th of March, and Saturday the 17th. Um, all tickets and details available at the Adelaide Fringe website, adelaidefringe.com.au, and you can uh, check out this interview and more information at our website, linkadelaide.com.au. Um, you're welcome back anytime, my friend, and uh, thanks again for your time. Thank you very much, Stephen. Nice of you to call. For more on this show and 922 others, check our website, linkadelaide.com.au, or you can find them all at adelaidefringe.com.au. And for the latest news and info from Link Adelaide, be sure to like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Link Adelaide.